about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honoured in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I do not know where they have put him. At this she turned around and and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Well, good evening. My name's Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Great to be with you. In fact, I've been away for the last two weeks on holidays, and I can't believe what it's like to miss two Sundays in a row. By the end of the two Sundays in a row, I was thinking, I've got to get back there. I love this community, I love being here, and I kind of really missed it. Um, I was actually a little bit early home, and I was kind of thinking, oh, can I, get, can I go and see CIG people, you know, last Sunday? But I'm here tonight. So I really love being here. It's great to come back and uh, be together. And over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about uh, the series Known by God. Uh, it's based on a book by Brian Rosner. Um, he wrote a book called Known by God, Really Worth... Uh, having a look at that or listening to the new college lectures uh, which describe what he means in the book Known by God. 
Um, and he's raised some very significant questions about personal identity. It comes out of a crisis that he personally was facing. And over the last four weeks, we've been thinking about some of the issues he raised in the book um, by looking at Bible passages and thinking about some of the concepts that he talked about in terms of being known by God, particularly in the context of identity. Now, as he began the book, and we referred to this actually at the beginning of the series, uh, one of the things he notes is that we live in a changing world, in a world that's very confusing when it comes along, uh, to, comes to the idea of personal identity. Um, on one hand, we're being told, be who you are. Act according to who you are. I happened, for some reason, to sort of see Saturday Night Fever last night, uh, not something I've ever really watched before, but right in the middle of that movie, there's a statement, be who you are. I thought, wow, that movie was made in 1978. And ever since then, people, before then, people have been saying, be who you are. Now, of course, the confusing thing about that is, who am I really anyway? Uh, Brian goes on in, uh, to quote a sociologist in his book and point out why it's so confusing to work that out. Uh, he talks about, uh, uh, the socio sociologist talks about um, the significant shift that has taken place within our society. And he describes it in terms of rivers and the sea. Um, in traditional communities, uh, what you did was you belonged to a kind of river. If you were a farmer and you were a farmer's son, you would probably expect to be a farmer. Uh, if you're a woman and involved in that kind of community, you would have particular roles to play within that community. Uh, you might belong to a certain class, and that would mean certain things about the ways you operated and what you did and how fortunate you were and how unfortunate you were. Um, it's fairly strong in terms of who you were and your identity. Of course, with that came the sense of being restricted, uh, a lack of freedom and an inability to explore uh, who you might be. Currently, our society is kind of saying, well, that traditional kind of view of things is not something we want to hold on to. Instead, what we want to do is go over here and be kind of like in a sea and be self-directed as to where we would like to be. We would like to swim in whatever direction we would like to swim. Now, of course, the, the wonderful thing about that is there's tremendous freedom in it. You can swim and swim and swim in whatever direction you would like. Uh, but what it also does is produce a tremendous amount of anxiety. Because which way am I meant to swim? How can I be truly who I am if I don't actually know what that means and which direction I should take? And so we see people growing in their anxiety and um, a whole lot of people trying to establish themselves in terms of who they are, but not quite sure how to do that. I guess the biggest implication we've noticed is that in that process, it makes us bigger and God smaller. It means we're so worried about ourselves that we don't actually include God much in the picture. And so the way we've been coming to that is thinking about the idea that, well, actually the Bible speaks into this situation by telling us that we are known by God. And over the last four weeks, we've been doing things like thinking about being known by God in terms of being on his hands, his tattoo, being in his sight, being seen by God, being on his mind, remembered by God. And this week, we're talking about known by God, being on his lips. 
And so that's where we're going this evening. We're thinking about what it means to be on God's lips, to be named by God. Now, of course, naming is really important. Uh, At this time of the year, I meet lots of new people, and one of the first things I do is say, Hi, I'm Roger. And the person usually responds and says, Hi, and gives me their name. Now, sometimes and occasionally the, the conversation moves on to kind of how did you get your name and what's your family story about your name. I don't know whether you have family stories about your name, things that people tell about how you got your name or things around your name. I know certainly in my family that has been the case. And I'm going to tell you a story. It's a really bad one, but it was brought out every time my name was mentioned in terms of where it came from. Uh, I grew up overseas and my parents used a two-way radio. At the end of the conversation in a two-way radio, you would normally say, Roger, to kind of signify the end of a sentence. Roger. And anyway, I had been born, I was named Roger, they were on the two-way radio, and the person at the other end used a really lame joke. They said, I guess if you'd had twins, you would have called them over and out. That's just a poor, that's a terrible story. But that's associated with my name in my family and it got told all the time. Now, I don't know whether you have stories like that, kind of really odd things that people say about your name in your context and in your family. Of course, the thing about names also is that it's about being known. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever left CIG on a Sunday night and walked down to the pub and the guy... And the door says, hi, Roger. You think, well, how do I know you? He might not use Roger for you, but you know what I mean. He says, your name. And you think, oh, I've got my name tag on. That's really daggy. But the first thing that pops into your head is, how do they know me? The naming is very important to the knowing. Now, what's also interesting to think about in this space in, in terms of this naming is the way that's, that's being uh, moulded in terms of social media. I've been reading a book called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Uh, it's a positive book about technology. It thinks it's a good thing, but it's raising questions about the way our phones are changing us. And one of the things that it, it talks about is the use of social media. And if you're on Facebook, for example, uh, and you have your name there, When you post something, you're posting something about yourself, but what you're also doing is expecting other people to recognise your name and to at least name you in their minds. And if they don't, if they don't like your post or comment on it, then there's an anxiety. Am I known? Do people really know who I am? Do people see who I am? Do people know my name. And so we see a whole lot of, again, angst and anxiety around identity and social media. And it's around being known and the idea of naming. Well, let's turn to the Bible and see what resources we have for thinking about this a little bit further. And this evening I want to think about two things and some implications. The first thing I want to think about is being named by God and its creative and healing power, and then being named by God a new identity. On the very first pages of the Bible, we see how naming is used in a creative way. 
In Genesis chapter 1, God is creating the earth. Verse 3, we read, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Then listen to what it says. It says, God called the light day, he named it day, and the darkness he called night. There's a creative moment. He's naming something. He's calling it something. It's not surprising, therefore, that as he creates Adam and Eve and they're called to rule over the earth, their first job is to name the animals and the birds. It would have been fascinating to see what names they came up with. But they're called to name as a creative act. It's also an act of authority, actually, over these things. Now we see that uh, played out in so many ways, and uh, if you've ever been to an infant baptism service, uh, there's a significant moment in the service where the minister asks, what do you name this child? Uh, we recognise in that service and publicly that the naming of someone is a creative act, a significant act in the identity and life of that child. Now, the truth is, naming something can be a creative and a beautiful thing, as we've seen in Genesis, and in the naming of a child can be a beautiful thing. But also naming can be something terrible. It can be a terrible burden to bear. Uh, being named can actually crush your identity. Remember, in one church I worked in, I got to know this woman called Peg. Um, and as we got to know each other and talked a little bit further, it turned out uh, that she was sh able to share with me the story of her name. And she said, oh, yes, the reason I've been called Peg is because my father said I was not much good and not worth anything other than to be pegged on the clothesline. Now, she had tremendous self, low self-esteem, and you understood why. Her father had said, the reason you're Peg is because you're worth nothing. And so every time people used her name, she was reminded of her worthlessness. It's terrible, terrible burden to have and to walk around with in your life. Uh, many of you will know I grew up overseas and when I came back to Australia, came back to an all-boys school with my brother, Stephen, um, we looked very Caucasian, but in fact we'd actually lived overseas all our lives. And so when we walked into this boys' high school, uh, we really didn't know what was going on. We had to kind of work out exactly how this worked because we're so used to a very different culture, although everybody expected us to know how everything worked. We came back in year eight and year nine. My brother was in year eight, and if you know anything about year eight boys, they can be pretty tough. On the first day of school, my brother arrives. He's trying to kind of mould in with everybody and the crowd and etc. and they're running down the hallway. A teacher sees them running down the hallway and says, you three came. And so my brother got off on his first day and was caned by this teacher for running in the hallway. Now that's not the end of the story. To make matters worse, you imagine how, how upset he would have been at that point. He then had to go and find his classroom. And not being familiar with the school, being a year eight boy for the first time there, he didn't know where the classrooms were and how they all worked. 
And so, of course, he ended up in the wrong classroom. Another year eight boys' classroom, which wasn't the one he was meant to be in. And the boys all laughed and said, you've got the wrong classroom. And then one of them shouted out, oh, there's Borneo Bill. In other words, he lived in Borneo, and they said, there's Borneo Bill. So for the rest of high school, his name was Bill. No one knew that his name was Stephen. He actually organised their reunion many years later for, as a year, and people were confused, who is this Stephen? They only knew him as Bill, but it was a way of naming him. And I want to suggest to you, actually, that raises a question for me and something that I've been observing over a number of years. And I guess I might sound like I'm kind of a bit thingy about this, but let me just make an observation about Australians. I think Australians are generous and kind and often name things in ways that are fun. But very often we use names as a way of having authority over people or putting people in their place. In this context, I think it was about bullying, actually. It was saying, you don't belong. You don't belong because you're strange, you're different. And to be honest with you, I've seen that actually happen more and more in terms of racism. I think of Australians as being sometimes unintentionally racist. We don't realise how racist we are in our approach of people and sometimes the way we use names and other people's names... Uh, means that we are racist towards them and we subject them to our authority or put them down or keep them in their particular spot because of the way we name them. And you can see how that shapes your identity. Now my brother's fine, he's got three kids and they're beautiful and it's all wonderful. But imagine having to put up with that for your whole high school period because of that one mistake in your first day. Perhaps you can identify with that in some way. Perhaps you know a name that has been used for you. Perhaps you are known in your own family in a particular way and a name is used there. Or perhaps you were at school and people said particular things to you and they named you and you hear that name and it, it just pains you. And it's become part of your identity and you've had to deal with it and work out how am I going to deal with the na being named in this way. Well, I want to suggest to you that there's hope. I want to invite you this evening to consider that you are named and known by God, that God knows your name. If you turn with me to that passage in Isaiah chapter 43, the people of Israel are feeling fairly desperate. Uh, as far as they're concerned, it's probably the end. Uh, it may be the fact that their names don't continue. Uh, you see in history where a whole society is subsumed by another culture and the names don't continue. And the people of Israel have that in mind, and their identity could be wiped out. And so into this space, we hear God speaking, and he says this, but now this is what the Lord says, who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. He's named them. Further on, Bring your sons from afar, your daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. See the creative power of God, but also the healing power of God. He says, 
I'm going to bring you comfort. I'm going to give you assurance of your future. I'm going to shape your identity. I know your name. Now we see this beautifully illustrated for us in John chapter 10 when Jesus is telling us a parable about sheep and shepherds. And he says in John chapter 10, verses 3 to 4, the gatekeeper opens the gate and the sheep listen to his voice. Now, the truth is that in near eastern times, sheep knew the shepherd's voice. So they'd listen for the shepherd's voice and they would follow the shepherd. And so Jesus refers to that kind of character of what takes place. But here he says something even more astounding. He says he calls his own sheep by name and leads them. It's not only that they hear his voice, they hear their name. They are named. And when he's brought them together, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know him. But you do notice the order, don't you? The shepherd knows the sheep before they know him. What's extraordinary about this narrative is it also is an insight into the way that relationship works, the shepherd and the sheep. As Jesus addresses the sheep or talks of the sheep, he talks of his relationship with God. See there in verse 14 and 15 in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. The relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, between the shepherd that knows the name of the sheep, is the same as Jesus and his Father. In the same way, it's shaped in, in the same way as the Father with the Son. Of course, we're speaking of a tremendously intimate and beautiful relationship at that point. It underscores the closeness of the relationship. It underscores the care of the relationship, the love in the relationship. And to kind of make that even clearer... Jesus says, in order that I can call my sheep by name, in order that I can call you by name, I lay down my life for the sheep. For the privilege of calling you by name, I lay down my life. Jesus understood the power of names. He knew what it was like to be bullied to be abused, to be shamed, to be called names. You might remember there on the cross, it had written King of the Jews. It was a mocking title. It was calling him names. And when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes our names, he takes all our hurt and our pain, our sadness, our shame, And he dies. And he says, I die in your place so that I could call you by name. Of course, there's a challenge here. You may have received a name and you may be called by Jesus, by your name. And that's a really important thing. If you go away tonight with one thing, know that you are called by Jesus by name. That's a really important thing to get onto. 
That's a beautiful thing to hold in your heart, so make sure you take that with you this evening. But there's a further truth here that the Bible unpacks for us, which is really interesting. And I think, I think it's something to do with the idea that we have this name, Jesus calls us by our name, but in, in some senses, when, we, when he calls us by our name, we, we come with all our baggage, all the stuff that comes with us, all the shame and the hurt and the pain and the ways we have acted and what we have done. And so there's a promise of something even better. And that is a new name, a new identity. Now we see this hinted at way back in Isaiah chapter 56 in a very interesting kind of way. Um, we hear Isaiah addressing eunuchs. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 4 and 5, we read these words. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Now, of course, the point here is eunuchs are not going to have children. And so their names will not continue. And the beautiful promise here is that, Jesus, uh, that Isaiah reminds us of is that they will have names even better than the names they have. Now, in some senses, that kind of is a fairly particular instance of this. But it says something about the preciousness with which, he which, with which God regards his people. He's determined to bless them beyond their expectations. In the New Testament, we hear something similar in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we hear of the seven churches and they're under persecution and they're facing various trials and different things um, as they gather together as a church. And in Revelation chapter 2, 17, we hear some words of encouragement that is offered to one of these churches in Pergamum. One is hidden manna. That's a bit hard to describe and exactly know what that's about. And the second thing that they're offered, in light of persecution, in light of their identity being wiped out, is a white stone. Now, commentators are not exactly sure what that white stone means, but the significance of the white stone is that it has a name on it. A name actually known only to God. A name which is given to those who have been persecuted. Encouraging those who have been overcome to persevere. God says, I will give you a new name. Now, it's also interesting to reflect on the fact that throughout the, the whole Bible, actually people are renamed. Abram to, Abram to Abraham. Simon to Peter. Jacob to Israel. There's, there's lots of renaming actually taking place within the Bible. And it's like what's happening is you are renamed, if you like, given a new identity a new purpose, a new direction. And I think that's what that is all about. This idea of a new name is about God transforming us and us being people who are new people with a new identity because of what Christ has done in the cross and the resurrection. 
And so it comes as no surprise as we think about two of the implications of this, to think about the New Testament and how it is applied. One of the things about the names in the New Testament is that it's not only applied individually, but it's also applied corporately. And so one of the frequent strategies that the New Testament uses is to name the people of God in a particular way and say, you have that identity, therefore live up to your name. You are named this way, so live as you are named. You have a new identity. And we see that actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 5 we read, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And then he goes on in verse 19, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? There's a, a renaming taking place here. The Holy Spirit who is within you, who you received from God, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore honour God with your bodies. Uh, This is very significant. If we are named by God, then we are called to live according to the identity with which we are named. If we are called by God, we are called to live in obedience to the name that we have received. And what I think also is fascinating here is that in the New Testament, we're kind of so individualised in our our Western world that we just think of ourselves personally and privately when we think of this renaming. But there's this corporate sense as well. And what that means is that we're actually connected to one another in fellowship. You'll notice in the communion service in a moment, we'll talk about participation, which is another word for fellowship. And so it matters how you act and how I act and what another person does and what another person doesn't do because it affects our name. It affects the identity that we have. Sometimes people think of communion as a kind of private affair just between you and God. That's just simply not true. It's part of it, sure. But we are coming together as the body of Christ and the way we behave and what we do affects that coming together and the way that we live. And we've seen terrible results when that hasn't happened. When people haven't recognised that as part of the body of Christ, their activities affect the body of Christ. What they've done in secret and in private damages the body of Christ. The Royal Commission just makes that so large for us, doesn't it? If we're named, we have a new identity, then we're called to live up to that identity. Okay, that's one way it works. A second thing to notice, and I think this is intriguing, in Christian circles over many years, we talked about um, a little phrase that we used everywhere was making Christ known, uh, knowing Christ and making him known. Uh, It was a little statement that people used as a way to kind of think about what the vision of uh, a Christian should be, knowing Christ and making him known. If we think back to that passage um, with Mary in John chapter 20, and actually we can think of many different passages where this happens, what's interesting is that Mary doesn't recognise Jesus. Uh, In the midst of all that's been happening, Mary is unaware that it's actually Jesus who's there. Now, Jesus knows Mary. 
And notice what happens. He calls Mary's name. And as she hears her name from her Saviour, she says, Rabbi, teacher, oh, I now know you. I know who you are. And then you notice the next thing she does, she goes off to the disciples to tell them about who Jesus is. And I want to suggest to you, to the extent that you understand what it means to be known by God, named by God, is the extent to which you will want other people to know about God. God knows you, you know about him, therefore you will want to make him known. I encourage you just to let that sink in and dig into your life and think about what it means to be known and how that shapes your identity and how God's knowing you and naming you makes a huge difference. Well, that brings us to the end of our series about known by God. And I hope you've been able to see how being known by God is far more important than the sea or the tradition, that being in Christ and sharing his identity actually is far more important for a rich and free and beautiful life. And that you live accordingly. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.